Hopefully the story of Job is known well enough amongst most of us that I could give a few brief quotations with a little comment and, and through that set before you what would be considered by many people a theological knot that, that we're not desirous to begin to try to untie. The beginning of the book of Job, verses 6 to 8 of chapter 1, we have this strange scene. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord, now we just picture this, the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Verse 12, The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. We know the story in that first round of attacks. Everything Job owns as far as livestock, property, wealth, business, as well as his children, every bit of it is destroyed. All of his children, dead. Job 1.21, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the devil has taken... No, that's not what it says, sorry. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in the next chapter, the, the, the scene is sort of rehearsed again. The devil comes, and he says, Have you considered Job? He still maintains his integrity. So then he's allowed to touch the body of Job. He's struck from his head to his feet with boils. And in chapter, at the end of chapter 2, his wife, you know, she says, why don't you just curse God and die? And he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And we get to the end of the book of Job. What, what was the end of the matter? All of this was bringing Job to a point, and he makes several statements in, in talking to God. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. So we ask, here's the, the theological knot. Who did it? The beginning of the book of Job. Who did it? Is it God? Or is it Satan? When we come to the end of the book, it, Job has not gotten a new revelation of the devil. He says, now I know how this God operates. Now I have known you. Who's at the helm? Who's in charge of all of this? Now, hopefully just contemplating that question is enough for us to recognize that very often when we speak of the sovereignty of God and we only talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation, we are uttering things too high for us, too beautiful for us, too lovely for us, things that we don't understand. Because if our understanding of the sovereign reign of God is limited only to good things, we've greatly underestimated this God. Now remember, in the, in the revelation of Christ, we're, we're dealing with trumpets of judgment. The trumpets, remember, are the result of the prayers of the saints. And we saw last week the 
the incomprehensible mercy of God and that as these trumpets of judgment are, are blown, that only one-third of the physical elements of the earth are stricken while two-thirds are left to remain. So we understand something of God's mercy, but as we continue to move forward, we have to remember that the mercy of God does not negate the justice of God and the judgment of God. All of God's attributes fit together in one perfect, absolute whole. It is not as in at any point God's mercy begins to squeeze out His justice or His justice squeezes out His patience never once. He is he's all mercy, all justice, all patience, all love. So we can't hammer down on the mercy and then pretend like these are not trumpets of actual judgment being, being blown. We ended that chapter in verse 13 by seeing that, that it's actually going to get worse. And we would ask, so seeing what has happened, what could possibly be worse than God using the entirety of the, cre- the, the, the physical elements of the universe the land, the sea, the fresh water, heavenly bodies, what could be worse than that? How does it get worse? Well, the answer is that God doesn't just limit Himself to the natural creation. He actually is in charge of and uses the spiritual realm, the spiritual order of things. He's not limited to using things that we can see. He's sovereign over everything. He is at liberty to use everything, and that includes... Satan and the demonic powers of hell. If we wanted to summarize the story of the Scriptures up until this point, the God of Job chapters 38 to 41, you remember God comes and He says, dress for action like a man, stand up straight, pull your pants up, I'm going to talk to you for a little bit. And He he reveals Himself. That same God took to Himself the nature of a man, worked out a perfect righteousness for bankrupt sinners who have no righteousness of our own, endured the fury of His Father for the sake of His siblings, has now ascended into the heavens to reign supreme, and guess who is still His lackey? Guess who is still His servant boy? The devil. The demons of hell. He rules over it all. That's what we see in this chapter. Now, in all transparency, I'm not happy at all with how this sermon is here. We're just going to walk through the text and we're going to try to pull out some, some principles as we walk through it, but there's, there's no catchy uh, or creative uh, sermon here. So, verse 1. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, the language there would, would literally... What John has just observed is a star that had in the past... Fallen. He doesn't watch it fall. The star is not falling. It is a fallen. It has in the past at some point fallen from heaven to earth. And then he says, and he, he gives a masculine pronoun to describe this star. The star is now personified. And then this star is given a key. Now again, we, we can't think just in terms of the picture, even though it helps to... to Visualize the picture, but throughout Scripture, a key is representative of authority. If you have a key, you have the ability to open and close a passageway. This star, personified as a he, is given this key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, or literally the abyss. 
Uh, I don't think there's any reason to believe that this is anything other than hell itself. But notice, he was given the key. The authority that he has is a delegated authority. Now, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus Christ Himself said, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. He doesn't say He was given. He says, I have them. I'm having them. I own them. They're my keys. And then here, Christ has sort of loaned out the key to the bottomless pit, the abyss, hell itself. Now, who is this star? I'm going to go ahead and say this is Satan himself, and I'll prove it as we go along, but that'll help from the outset. This, this personified star is Satan. So put together the picture. The saints of God have cried out. They've lifted up their voices for vindication and for justice. God has heard their prayers. He does not delay long. He answers speedily in these temporal judgments, which we might call pre-final judgment judgments or pre-wrath wrath, which shouldn't be strange to us, right? We know Romans 1 says, the wrath of God is right now presently revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So it's not like there is no wrath and then all of a sudden wrath. The wrath is being revealed. John 3, Jesus Himself tells us the wrath of God abides right now on those who do not believe in the Son and obey the Son. It's not like people are are free agents until someday wrath begins. But even now, if you are an unbeliever, you are abiding under the wrath of God. And so what we're seeing here is another display of of this pre-wrath wrath, this warning judgment to the unbelieving world. Christ gives Satan a job to do. And He gives him the authority to exercise that job. Verse 2, He, the star, Satan, opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and the shaft from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Hopefully we're all aware of the the old saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. We just heard of the smoke of God's judgment burning on the one who does not put to death the the root of bitterness. He says here, the smoke of a great furnace. How does the furnace burn? Or how does it put forth smoke? You burn things in this furnace, alluding to fire and judgment. Very similar to the language that was used when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, which we just heard about. In Genesis 19, 28, Abraham looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want you to picture this scene. He looks down upon Sodom and Gomorrah toward the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a great furnace. He looks down upon these cities and the incinerated remains of wood and human flesh and animal flesh has been brought to such tiny particles that the air wafts it up into the sky and blackens the sky. That's what Abraham saw. The, like a furnace just billowing up. People destroyed. Well, that's what we, we see here. The smoke of fiery judgment billowing out of hell itself and it's filling the air. It's darkening the sun. Verse 3, Then from the smoke came 
locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. From the smoke, remember we're talking about hell itself, locusts. Now, if we had to imagine, none of us have been into the abyss or to hell itself, but if we had to imagine, if you were there, how many locusts, we might would think of, you know, big fat grasshoppers, or insects of any kind really, how many are just hanging out there in, in hell? Not many. Not any. Because this is not meant to be taken as literal locusts who have, they were just sort of hanging out there, they were trapped, and all of a sudden, now they're let loose. We're not talking about literal locusts, we're talking about the inhabitants of hell itself pouring out of this shaft. They were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. Now, scorpions sting, locusts don't sting. Notice again, they were given. They are the passive recipients of the ability to inflict some kind of stinging, excruciating pain. These are not normal locusts. Verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Notice they are commanded literally to do the very opposite of what a locust is designed to do. Don't harm the grass, the earth, any green grass of the earth or any green plant or tree. What do locusts do? They eat the grass, they eat the green plants, they eat the leaves of trees. But they're told, don't do that. Only those people, these locusts are sent forth to harm people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. This is the unbelieving world. And again, notice the little phrase, they were told. They are under very specific orders. Don't do this. Do this. Now what are these creatures? They come from hell. They are under the command of Satan. They're described as locusts, but they don't do what locusts do. They sting like scorpions, but they can't just sting anybody. They can only sting unbelievers. Well, I think we have the answer over in verse 11, which says, They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, who I would take as the same one referenced in verse 1, their leader, their ruler. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is called Apollyon. Destruction, destroyer. These are the very demons of hell acting under the leadership of their prince who is the devil and Satan. So put the picture again, put in your mind again. The, the saints have prayed. They call out for vindication. The prayers of the saints come before God. Christ in temporal judgment commissions Satan to unleash the demons of the abyss to inflict torture on the unbelieving world. Now why are they described as locusts? To us that doesn't seem very threatening unless you're like me and anything that flies is terrifying and stings and bites. But for, for most of us, a locust, we would say... That's not a very a scary creature. Well, remember that the, the language of the Exodus sort of colors all of these trumpet judgments. But go back to the Exodus, chapter 10, verse 14. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees. 
that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. This kind of a creature is, is not a threat to us for the most part. Locusts are not an insignificant pest in the Middle East. We read last week in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 38, God promising or threatening the judgments that would come. And He says, You shall carry much seed into the field and gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. In 2 Chronicles 7.13, God promises or threatens judgment again and says that He can command the locust to devour the land. So imagine that you live in a society where crops are your livelihood. You, you, you grow so that you can eat, store in your barns to get to the next growing season. What you have left, what's extra, you sell so that you can make money to buy the things that you can't grow. This is your livelihood. You've invested into the sowing months. You've labored by the sweat of your brow to till the ground, to put in the seed, to pull out the weeds. You've watched as the early rain comes and the latter rain comes and you've prayed. You look at your barns from last year and they're getting low just like you planned. You want this store to run low so that when it's time for harvest you'll be able to replenish the storehouse. And then a swarm of locusts comes in so thick that you can't see the sky or the ground or the plants. They land on your crops and everybody else's crops as far as you can see and they consume it, devour every bit of it. The biggest weapon that you have doesn't phase them. The more you crunch and swat and smash, it just seems like they continue to multiply. You can't even put a dent in their number. They're not phased. They're not afraid. They're not intimidated. They're mindless insects, according to Scripture, who have no king, locusts themselves. All they know is fly, land, eat, mate, lay eggs, die. That's all they know. Their entire life cycle takes about five months. This is a locust. This represents sweeping, uncontrollable devastation. In Nahum chapter 3 and verse 15, we read there, Will the fire devour you? The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Now we would think fire, sword, you don't need to, com- you don't need to illustrate any further. But no, the fire and the sword are going to be so bad, they're going to be like locusts. Destroying everything. Judges chapter 6, the Amalekites would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land. Judges 12, the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore. You see, there's a comparison. Sand, locusts, abundance, a great horde. And unimaginable uncountable, uncontrollable, sweeping devastation that leaves nothing. When they fly away, it looks like wintertime. Stalks are bare, trees are bare, fruit is gone, grass is grown, everything's gone. That's the picture of the locust and the plague of the locust. Now take that idea, and this still happens to this day. You can, you can watch videos of this. They can't walk without locusts hitting them everywhere. We, we, 
We get aggravated when a few gnats get around our eyes and ears. Imagine locusts so big that you can't walk without crunching them everywhere. Now, take that picture and for every locust, switch it out with a demon from hell. And that's the picture that we have here. Demons are not physical beings, they're spiritual beings. Here, they're not allowed to harm vegetation. They are restricted. You can only torment human souls. Verse 5 says, They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. Now, scorpions don't typically kill when they sting, but they do hurt. Again, five months seems to be a a reference to the average life cycle of these locusts. The goal of their existence for all of their existence is just torment. But notice the language again. They were allowed under complete control. Revelation 9, 6. In those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The spiritual and psychological torment inflicted by these demons is so great that death seems like the only way out. And people will want to die, but they, it won't be found. They can't die. They're forced to just continue in spiritual agony day after day after day. Now, some of you were converted at riper years, and so you can, you can remember back very well the constant pressure of unfulfilled desires in the soul as a lost person. Daily, hourly, living and seeking for joy, seeking for some satisfaction, but you can't find it. It's not there. Nothing satisfies. You cannot attain. No matter how much you get, it's never enough. Now, the the people of the world like to pretend like they don't live like that. Oh, that's not me. I'm fine. Well, then why are you constantly scavenging after every temporal pleasure under the sun if you're so satisfied? This is true of the people of the world. To use the language of Proverbs 13, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. This is how the lost person lives, wanting, 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 but they are unwilling and therefore unable to have any satisfaction. But they have a craving. They were created with a craving. The people of this world without Christ, they have many of the same sorrows that the regenerate person has, except they have no comfort in their sorrows. I can't imagine. I went to a funeral this week. I can't imagine watching loved ones die and burying loved ones and going through this cycle with no hope whatsoever. No comfort. They they suffer. But their suffering has not, like ours, been sanctified by Christ. When we suffer, when we walk through the alleyway of suffering, we can almost still smell the, the aroma of Christ because we know He's gone before us. They don't have that. Everything is a dead-end torment for them. They live every day chasing something that they never obtain. Every material possession that they finally get their hands on, it lets them down. Give them about two or three weeks and it's not enough. You've got to find something else. They work to earn a living, but they never truly live as God created them to live. They strive to please men 
who are rarely ever pleased. If they are pleased, it's just momentarily and then the, the bar is raised more. They can receive blessings like we do, like children, and, and listen to their cries right now. Let's get back to normal so I can get these kids out of my house. Blessings from Almighty God. We would say, God has lavished on us blessings. They say, burden, 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 burden. Because they have nothing outside of themselves. Their marriages have no value outside of you know, however long they might make it. And then you just celebrate that they endured that long. And that's, they're amazed that somebody, these two people endured one another for 40, 50, 60 years. If they have friendships, they're usually based on nothing but self-pleasure. What can I get from you? Or they're just suspicious all the time that their friends are not actually their friends. Souls created by God to worship and enjoy Him, and yet they don't have Him. They spurn Him, they hate Him, they ignore Him, they suppress the truth about Him, they are utterly miserable. They don't want you to know that, but they are absolutely miserable. Now here we see the demons of hell are unleashed to take all of that spiritual and psychological anguish and amplify it. And, and aggravate it and put their finger in it and bring it to a boil constantly. They plague the minds and the souls because they're torturers of souls. Again, if you don't believe it, take a look, a short look. At what's, what passes as music? What's put out on television? Look at the advertisements. Watch the news, you know, because we all know the news is completely neutral. We say, well, I just watch the news. Okay, well, watch the, the news. And then watch the advertisements and, and take notice at what they're trying to feed human beings. The movies that are made, the things that are marketed. We live in a world where legal drugs are actually marketed on television. Take a look at where money is spent, what it's spent on. We know that pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry. People are utterly miserable. They have nothing they glory in sin, rebellion, heartache, violence, and death. Every one of us have been put into a demographic, a little cage, and we're being spoon-fed advertisements to try to sell things to us, trinkets day in and day out. A large portion of our society is on or even addicted to psychotropic drugs, whether antidepressants or stimulants like Ritalin and Adderall. Demons, demons, demons. This is a playground for demonic activity. They love it. They take our depravity and they just revel in it. Now this sounds weird to our 21st century ears, doesn't it? Because we've got an answer for everything. We've figured everything out and we've taken the supernatural and scooted it way back in the past. And we've got, we've got a drug for everything. We can fix everything. Because we don't believe that there is a spiritual world, there is real spiritual warfare, and anybody who talks about spiritual warfare, usually they go too far, and so we feel like we have to stay away from that extreme, and we've invented a Christian world where there is no spiritual warfare. But that's the world we live in. Verse 7 says, In appearance the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. I referenced Jeremiah 51 last week. Blow the trumpet among the nations. Bring up horses like bristling locusts. The picture is an army going to battle so dense that you can't see through them. But here the, the army, it's not men and horses. 
oh, the mercy of God if it were just men and horses. We wish that all we had to deal with was men and horses. But these are demons coming into battle like horses. In verses 7 through 11, we see this language. Their heads, on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Now just notice over and over what looked like. Faces like, hair like, breastplates like. John is like Ezekiel, he's just grabbing. I saw something and I'm trying to give you something of the imagery they had something like crowns, more than likely, which references that these, these demons are riding forth as if victoriously, as if conquering. They have faces like human faces. They are intelligent, rational creatures. They have hair like women's hair. Throughout the Scriptures, the hair is, is a gift of God for the, the beauty and the glory of a woman, but in the negative sense, it can also be used for seduction. They have teeth, like a lion's teeth, to devour and to destroy, breastplates of iron. They are coming out for battle. They know that this is an all-out war, and they are riding to win. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. Now, why do I? One of the other reasons I believe this is Satan. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the prince or by Beelzebul. They said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, who is that? Well, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand if Satan casts out Satan. Now who's, he's being accused of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. He says, well, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Who is the prince of the demons? It's Satan. Who, singularly speaking, stands as representative of all demonic power? Satan. Notice Jesus did not say, if Satan casts out demons. He says, if Satan casts out Satan. He is the collective, if we could say the, the synecdoche, I'll use that word. He is the synecdoche of all demonic power. Who's king of the demons? It is an angel. It is an angel who has at some time in the past fallen. It is Satan himself. So the judgments have intensified. Not only does God use the physical elements of this world against the bodies of men, but He uses the very demons of hell marshaled against the souls of men to torture them. But remember, in all of this, Christ handed over the key. Christ gave the power to torment. Christ set the boundaries on who could be tormented. Christ said five months no more. Christ said you can hurt them, but you can't kill them. So the present age is an age of unprecedented demonic torment upon the souls of men under the undivided attention and oversight of the man, Christ Jesus. Now, does this seem strange to you? That God, the Son, 
would employ Satan in his plan. That on that scroll, written on the front and on the back, there would be a few lines in there about the, the, the role of the devil, just how far he could go and how far he could, go, he could not go. If that seems strange, then I believe your views of God are too small. Many people would rather have the, the tiny God of a dualistic universe. You know, he's on the same level of Satan. Always battling for the victory. Good versus evil in a never-ending title match for the crown. They would rather have that than the God of the Bible who reigns omnipotent over everything. He uses all creation as He pleases. In other words, they want good versus evil rather than God using evil for His purposes. And that's because that concept... Who did it? Is it God or is it Satan? Who's who's, who's at the helm? That, That concept ties a theological knot in the minds of men who have set out to do nothing more than to peddle their God to an unbelieving world rather than being able to stand and look men and women in the eyes and say, my God is in the heavens, He does whatever He pleases. My God holds you, wicked rebels, in derision. All of your rebellion, my God's laughing at what you're doing. My God opens the earth and swallows mamas holding their babies. Do you have a problem with that? My God says, good work, Phineas. If you hadn't speared those two to death, I would have not have stopped at 24,000 people slaughtering. I would have wiped every last one of you off this earth. Men hate a sovereign God. Or to keep from being redundant, men hate a God. If He's God, He's sovereign. There is no other God. There's no way to be God except to rule over everything. But men hate that because they're convinced in their minds, well, I'm a God. And that won't work. A few other passages of Scripture that I think just sort of, for lack of a better term, fill out this this picture, Judges 9.23, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. 1 Samuel 16.14, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. 1 Samuel 18.10, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. 1 Samuel 19.9, then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. 2 Chronicles 18 a little longer portion, gives us sort of a, a... We get another picture into the heavens. Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne. I love that every time anybody sees God, He's sitting on His throne. He's just sitting, serene. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne, and all the host of heaven standing on His right hand and on His left. And the Lord said... Who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I'll go out. I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, God said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. The prophet continues, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you. Who rules over evil spirits? It is the Lord God in the heavens 
doing whatever He pleases. He does not need us to defend Him. He does not need us to apologize for Him. He does not need a buffer. He does not need us to soften Him up. Church, stop trying to soften God up. The problem with our society is that Christians, even those who profess to believe in the sovereignty of God, hear it, preach it, amen it, and then they go out and they feel like they have to be a buffer. A, a, a One who has been commissioned to preach is not a buffer. He just comes and says, the Lord says. I don't need to soften it. I don't need to clear it. I don't need to, to, to defend it in any way. If that's hard for you, then you need to understand God is hard to deal with. He's a hard God. He's not a soft God. He rules the demons of hell. Go, stop, go, stop, you, go, stop, all the time. That's his, that's his role, his position. We must stop softening God. If it puts you in a theological knot, then just go to another text. And preach Him from there. But don't get in a place where you have to say, well, now it does say that, but well, let me explain to you here. What's happening here? No, don't soften it up. Read it. And leave it. Does it seem strange that perhaps in our diagnosis of the problems on earth, we might be dealing with far more demonic power than we, we typically tend to imagine? We don't want to swing into the extreme of, you know, everything's the devil. And so we swing, swing far over to this extreme to where it's just people. We're just, we're just dealing with people. We think that people are just physical, autonomous beings and that all of, our, all of the problems can be answered by just a, a good reasoned argument. If I can get in their minds and convince them, then they'll, they'll come around. And that's what somebody was talking about Charles Finney earlier. That was Finney's thing. Give me five minutes with a person, I can have him converted. We know the text, Ephesians 6.12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, we very rarely do we stop and ask, why did Paul have to say that? Because we, we tend to act like what he means is, we don't have anything to do with people, really. Like it's, we're, it's a spiritual warfare. And so just go out and, and pray against the demons. Just spray out some prayers to, to swat the demons away. And then we can begin to reason and give good reasonable arguments with people. But that's not what he's saying. See, he knows that as we go out, we will be working with people of flesh and blood. We cannot go out under the impression that we're just dealing with flesh and blood. It's not just brain matter in their ears that I've got to reason with and manipulate. It's, it's people... Flesh and blood under the influence of demonic power. Sweeping, devouring plagues of demons. Now, the problems with mankind are certainly rooted in our depravity. And I hope to show that next week. It's, we can't say, well, I, I'm, it's just the demons that got to me. It's just the devil. We can't say that. It's our fault. But we can't pretend that, that there are no demons. We can't be fooled into thinking that man's malady is just mental. There really is a devil. There really are demons. They really are at work. We read the Gospels. We know this to be true, right? But then we get out of the Gospels and we, we, we assume that that was just a special time. And since then, 
the, the demons of hell have just sort of thrown in the towel and they just sort of wait and they're just waiting in heaven until or waiting in hell until until Christ comes and consigns them to the lake of fire. But the scriptures actually would seem to imply that the evil one has, since the work of Christ has been accomplished, ramped up his strategies as Christ gives a little slack to the leash. Now consider all of that with another text from the Gospels, Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And what did he say? I saw Satan fall like a star from heaven, fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Then, just like now, the present age is an age of gospel preaching. And the gospel is going to go forth. The strong man has been bound. Christ is plundering his goods. And as the gospel is preached, I said this a few weeks ago, as the gospel goes forward, Satan's kingdom is, is falling. It's crashing down around him. Now he's quick and he's got a lot of help and so he's very good at building up another tower and then it crumbles and he'll build up another one and it crumbles. Here, serpents and scorpions are parallel with the power of the enemy. Keep this in mind for next week. The power of the enemy to deceive and torment. Through the church, the manifold wisdom and power of God is displayed to demons through the preaching of the gospel, the strongholds of demonic power are thwarted. How many times have you heard Romans 16, 20 quoted twice in a, a sermon that wasn't related? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What does that mean? Well, I thought Satan was already crushed. He is. Well, how can he continue to be crushed? Because we keep on waging war. It's already, but not yet. There's still a work God is ruling over the very demons of hell and using them to torment the souls of men who refuse to repent. And where is our rejoicing to be? A noticeable victory? Man, it's looking really great out there. No. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You belong to the God who has dominion over all of these things. You have the seal of God. These things cannot harm you. Fight! Just fight, and these things come falling down. I've got several points of application, but let's just, one is sufficient. We need to be done with a dualistic worldview. Sometimes we think we don't have it, and we do. As I studied this week, and thought, and, and read, and prayed, and studied. And I could, as I considered what this passage was saying, I could feel myself doing this. Smaller, and smaller, and smaller, and smaller, and God is getting bigger, and bigger, and bigger, and then I realize I'm still too big in my own mind, and I'm, I'm still not thinking correctly. My views of God are far too small. And that's how we need to be when we see this. We might wage spiritual war against demonic forces, but our Lord sits in the heavens. He's not just like a greater soldier in our army. He's in the heavens. He aids us in the battle. But He sits in the heavens. 
He reigns over the hosts of heaven and the hosts of hell. They hate Him and they must obey Him. They fight against Him because they fear Him. They tremble at the thought of Him and then they have to say, yes, sir, and submit to Him like tools in a mechanic's garage. What an awesome and terrible God we serve. But in the past, the idea has struck me, just this phrase, the God of peace will soon crush. It seems very contradictory in our, in our understanding of peace. The God of peace will soon crush. We think of peace as, well, I, need some, I need some peace and quiet. Every, everything go away. I don't need any, any noise, any activity. But this, this peace that, that God exemplifies and, and personifies for us is a peace that crushes because it is a peace that has in mind His people. Just like the illustration Ben gave if we as fathers, if we recognize that there is a danger, we set ourselves to make peace. Stop the danger. Bring peace. Now that might mean running, swooping up a child. That might mean locking and loading, whatever, whatever it is, and running toward the danger to make peace. We've, we've heard of firearms called a peacemaker. We're going we're, we're, we're to bring peace. This is what God has done. Because the peace is not, well, there's just a lot of chaos and noise. The peace is that we have been, that we have been separated because, in our very nature from God Himself. That's the peace. The animosity is between our nature and God's nature. And God has come down and said, that's it, I'm making peace. Now, how has He done it? Through the blood of the cross of Christ. This is where peace comes to the people of God. And it's, it's not that everything gets quiet and settled. It's that we have been reconciled to our God. That is real peace. And at that same cross, Christ accomplishes the work that says, you're going to go forth and you're going to fight and it, it's not going to be all quiet, but you won't be harmed. I will protect you. I know who belong to me. The work of Christ on the cross guarantees our safety even in this world plagued with demonic activity and sin and, and depravity. Christ has guaranteed. He's put His blood on the line. I will seal these. They are mine. They have been reconciled. They will not be harmed. When we come to the table of the Lord, we give our attention to that act. The cross of Christ. The pinnacle of human history. So, believer... Look there and remember that peace has been made. If you're not a Christian, there is no peace apart from faith in Christ Jesus. No peace. For all of eternity, no peace. So give your attention to that and then we'll, we'll come to the Lord's table together.